This Cosmos Live series, Preparing for Profound Change, is made possible by Immediacy, leading creators of educational media for learners of all ages, everywhere. And by Cosmos Community, dedicated supporters of the Cosmos mission, transformation in harmony with all life. Visit cosmosjournal.org to learn more. This is Cosmos Live, and I'm your host, Rhonda Fabian. Welcome to Cosmos Live, Andreas. Thanks, Rhonda. So many times uh, reading your book, Matter and Desire and Erotic Ecology, um, I'm reminded how nature speaks to us in every moment uh, in a language both familiar and forgotten. How do you think nature is speaking to us in these troubled times? Yeah. First, thanks for for getting me so so nicely. So so I really I really feel you you um, you nail what I want to um, to say when you say it's language familiar and forgotten. Um, it's a it's a language which we always were we we are able to speak from the beginning because we are living bodies as all the other beings are living bodies. And at the same time, we are um, we are taught. I'd say we are taught that other living beings are um, machines or computers, at best, or dead matter or mechanisms. And normally, we don't really um, believe ourselves when our senses and our um, our sensitive skin and our um, our desireful way to get into contact with others tell us that there is a communication happening. It, it seems we once had a spiritual intimacy with other species. Um, what do you think happened? Yeah, we, that's. I mean, that's that's the predicament of our civilization. Actually, you're, you're you're getting it. I'm convinced that every living being is able to understand. Um, from a very on a very basic level, what it means to be alive, and that's um, being alive as a sentient and feeling body. Or well, we need to look at the history of our idea of making a better world, or of dominating um, that which is not human, in order to uh, grant um, humans or humanness a, a better place. It has to do with its desire to conquer that which cannot be controlled. And ultimately, it has to do with the desire of Western civilization to get rid of death, which, which for sure isn't possible, but which in a way is our obsession. But getting rid, um, getting away with death, getting rid of it means to get rid of our um, sensitive and even erotic body. And that's, that's the drama we are in at the moment. I wonder if you would share with us, Andreas, um, a, a brief passage from the beginning of the book. You speak so beautifully about the Swifts and um, 
Well, if you would you read that and we could we could talk about Absolutely. it? Absolutely. I'd love to. I'd love to. Yeah. You need to excuse my German accent actually. It might be when I when I read it it might be more um visible to myself. Um yeah, I'm 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 reading to you a passage which I found when I was when I spent um a summer in a in a tiny village in the Apennine Mountains in the middle of Italy where 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 I had my my second home for a couple of years. Now I don't have it anymore. And um, there I learned a lot about um, the, the living world as a world of mutuality and relationship. The swifts inhabit the, the air as sunlit froth, as though the old castle were, were a cliff surrounded by the swell and surge of the sea. One animal after another plummets toward the walls and turns away in the last tenth of a second, leaning into the turn like a pilot flying a death-defying acrobatic maneuver. Or rather, the other way round, the pilot flying the maneuver turns like the playful swift. Our gaze moves skyward and does not turn away, seized by the bird's dynamism. Our necks bend to follow their curves, circles and arcs, our eyes sucked upwards into the chasing loop-the-loops and fleeing chicaneries of wind-taught bodies, nothing but wings, curving blades that cut tracks into the fabric of the sky. Speechless and humble as our limbs tinkle with the joy of life, our gaze is an homage. The bird's infectious happiness is their trust in the air's capacity to carry them, the air's power to be void, and thereby to support. So, so beautiful. It takes a poetic consciousness to capture the, the just the reality of a scene like that. It just makes me wonder if are you do you consider yourself a biologist or a poet? <laughs> well, I'm considering myself both, and actually, I'm considering myself. Um, as a biologist, because I am a poet, so so I think that's the um, that's the forgotten side of biology. Actually, that's that's the side um, that every being is expressive of inwardness, and um, th this is something we know, and this is something that draws people to get into contact with other living beings and to to um, even to study biology. And then when you study biology, you slowly unlearn this first motivation of yourself, or you unlearn the love for life and um, substitute it with some much something much more technical. And um, um, I mean, um, what I did here, and maybe it's it's a kind of paradigmatic passage because I really tried to show that every everything. Um, visible and physical and um, palpable, graspable, has not only an outside, but also and always has a meaningful inside. And, um, and through this, the world isn't just a place um, where um, stuff is happening, but the world is always um, also an interior and, and a stage and a stage for... Um, meaningfulness I would say that the world itself is is um, is an inside um, 
waiting to express itself and living beings are a way of um, of making this inside visible and um, and 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 um, communicate it and and that's why I, that's actually what i experience myself and that's what i search and that's what i try to express when i talk about other living beings and um i mean i'm i might do it in an extreme way as i'm as i have this poetic tendency but I would say that most of my fellow biology students, when they started, were very much aware of this, of this magic in life, which is actually the magic about our own existence. This, this feeling that, wow, I really do exist and I am transparent to others and I can get into contact with others and, and I, 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 I feel pain and bliss. And, and why is this so? And what is the world? What is this world? in which this is possible to have a, a, a sensitive insight. So we have this huge abyss in the middle of, 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 the, of, our, of our different cultures, which I feel um, has to do with the fact that we are in this environmental crisis and we're losing other life forms and we don't understand ourselves and we don't understand our feelings. So I think it's, it's absolutely important to take serious our own personal experiences of being connected through emotion and through expression and I, I try I just try to retrace them I, I love how you speak about poetic logic or po that poetry has a, its own form of precision um, I have a quote here which which always you say quote emerges from contradiction and is the basic magic of life it unleashes the imaginative power by which something simul simultaneously is and is also its opposite. That really caught me, and I, I can't say exactly why, but it has something to do with this sense of ourselves as as binary beings somehow suspended or, or, or caught between these in, these extremes or these these contradictions. No, yeah, it's it's a, it's a deeply important point, actually, and I can I can. Um... Let me just let me just go to your into your um, direction and, and and put it a little bit further. What what you what you started to say, if you allow me. Yes, please. Um, uh, I mean, we know that the let's say a logic of contradiction or or a fashion of contradiction is more um, the style of Eastern um, spirituality or philosophies, and we know this these these Zen sayings, which to our Western ears are are. are, are are strangely beautiful, but also a little bit weird because they are contradictory. I'm not a scholar of Eastern philosophy, and I'm not a, I'm not a, not one of these people who were deeply fascinated by this and then started there. I just let me just remind you um, that we, when I talk about contradictions and organisms, we, we organisms we are made of matter, as we know. So we're, we are made of these, um, let's say, tiny bits of of. Of stuff or or these quanta of energy, however however you take it. So so these things, which which have a, a natural tendency just to just to burn and then lie there and do nothing. That's that's what the the physicists know. This this is what happens to the universe. So it's just there's a tendency in this matter just to just to rest. And on the on the other hand, organisms are, are doing the opposite of this. So so there is some kind of strange. Um, well, let's call it desire or tendency, um, which which binds together matter, which just wants to rest and makes it dance. And um, there's already a contradiction. And then we have another contradiction in the fact that 
this matter I'm talking about, it's not, it's never the possession of an organism. So you're, the matter you're made of is not, it's not yours. It's completely shared with everything else in this world. So, so while you're sitting here now and while you're breathing, you're giving off um, CO2, carbon dioxide, which um, makes the earth warmer. And the carbon inside the CO2, it, this is your body, actually. We don't have any material identity. Like all the all this stuff we own, this is all completely identical to itself. You can put it in a drawer and it will be there and it doesn't metabolize. And it's like 200 years later, it's still there in a way. And maybe a little bit dusty. But an organism is not at all like this. It's It, it needs to... It's metabolism. To... Yeah, I mean, metabolism means to recreate oneself at any moment from stuff which 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 I don't own, and then give up with that which is me to the world, and um, um, which I don't own again. Uh, on the other hand, we never really pay attention to the fact that identity is something which every living being needs to create in any moment, um, because the stuff is not our own. And, and there you have the, the, a huge contradiction between that, which is identity, which isn't, it, it's not made of matter. It's, 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 more, um, it's more a desiring to carry on. In a way, we are totally the, this world. We, we are the whole of this world because materially we, we are just the world. And on the other hand, we, we have this, um, this meaningfulness, this meaningfulness with, which comes with the fact that um, that we always strive to carry to to create our own identities. So the metaphor of a machine, to my eyes, for for all this, what what I have tried to explain um, right now, the metaphor of of a living being as a machine is completely wrong. It's 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 a fundamental error. I want to speak to one thing, and that is um, how this actually does relate in some ways to Eastern thought. Um, I think that there is a misconception about this, this idea that we and our senses are, are illusions devoid of existence. Whereas in fact, I think like my teacher Thich Nhat Hanh would say, um, we live in, in, in a state of inter, interbeing. And that instead, um, we and our senses are empty of self-existence, a separate existence, you know. And I think that's a huge, uh, huge distinction. And that's what I love about your work, is that you bring this sense of interbeing. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I love I love Teach Natal, and I deeply admire him. So, so that's that's it's good to know that he was your teacher. And I, I actually think that we are in in in, in no um, let's say no spiritual tr tradition we we ever have reached the end of thinking. So, so why not go and um, um, and put a new light on certain old um, even Eastern spiritual traditions? From a, from a new vantage point of, of, of self-understanding. The, the beauty of this is that we have this fundamental interbeing, which then gives rise to selfhood, which then is again only possible by a fundamental interbeing. I, I mean, I can try to explain this in, in a little bit more concrete terms. That's the advantage to be a biologist. So I always have an example from biology. In an ecosystem, um, every being can only exist because it can eat others and it is eaten by others. So we have 
the, the idea of fundamental interbeing as, as completely sharing your bodies with others, which you could see as, 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 as cruelty, but you can also see it as a, as a source of fertility. And only this makes, um, makes possible that any individual and any selfhood can exist. So you, you need both. And that's, I mean, that's another way of talking about the paradoxes I'm, I'm talking about in this book. We need the totality of um, mutual, um, how would I call it, of mutual um, interdependency or interpenetration. You need this um, to be a self. You need to incorporate other to be a self. So you need, you can only be a self if you give yourself away to other. And I think this, this is a profound, um, that's a profound insight, actually. And it is a, it's, it's an ecological insight. You look at a, at a flowering meadow in summer, and you realize this. And you realize this by realizing that it manifests through beauty and through the, the way it, it touches you and it relates to your experiences. So it's some, there's something about, about this. And um, so you can go and realize this. And at the same time, it's also concerning our our way to live and our way to relate. And I mean, that's 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 um, that's one of the main messages of of this book, actually, that um, we in in every relationship we need to consider that we can be ourselves only through making the other flourish. And otherwise, we can't be ourselves. So we have a fundamental, deep interdependency in every relationship, which is an ecological fact, but which is also um, a feature of reality. So it's a it's a spiritual um, um, principle to my eyes, and um, and it's a paradox. And our Western societies at the moment don't believe in this paradox. It's it's about enhance yourself. Um, to the detriment of others. That's the idea of competing and of being more efficient. And this is just not how the, the world works. The world works in the way that I can only be myself if I um, if I become myself through the the exchange with others. I think you say it so beautifully when you mention the book that we we gain meaning through feeling, and you say, uh, "quote Feeling means that." One piece of the world folds in another, calling forth an order that contains both and neither because it is something altogether different. That seems to me a pretty good definition of love. Yes. Yes. Thanks. Thanks. You, you spotted it. <laughs> really beautiful. The idea that um, I, can, I can be myself through letting the other be herself. Um, to my eyes, is the, the the outline of a practice of love, and and what I find so fascinating is that um, we can see this practice of loving already in the way an ecosystem functions. As I explained, in an ecosystem, um, a single being can only be because it um, it is able to transform itself into the whole ecosystem. It gives itself away, and and the result of this of this mutual transformation, which means a self can only be if, um, if, if, it's, if it opens up to other totally. The result is the, all the beauty of an ecosystem, all the beauty of the flowering meadow of the, the May um, in, 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 
in this part of Italy with, with, with all that richness. So we, um, we can, to my eyes, we can walk into love as something which is happening as a practice of um, sharing life um, between beings. And that's, that's actually ecology from, from, a, from a different standpoint. And that's why it is so meaningful to us. And it, on the other hand, it's um, it's something we can learn for ourselves. So we can we can try to, or we should try to think. Okay, how can we, how can we establish an ecology of love as a practice of mutual nourishing? How can we do this in a relationship? And and um, and then we find that um, this that this uh, structure of I grow because I grant you growth. That's actually the core of any truly happy experience of personal love. That's what happens when I, um, when I give something to my child so that she can flourish, that, that makes me bigger. Uh, and I mean, that, so we can, we, can, we can implement an ecology of love in our relationships, which is n not different at all from what is happening in ecosystems, only that we can be, let's say, the actors in, in that practice. And um, I mean, that's that's maybe that's even the core message of the whole book is that we have completely forgotten that um, to be in this world in a fertile and fruitful manner means to be um, a loving partner of others. And being a loving partner of our others means to come to myself through letting the others come to themselves. I'm going to speak to the biologist for a moment and, and say, or it's really both the poet and the biologist. Everything is both, I guess. But <laughs> as we unravel the mysteries of uh, DNA and with our increased understanding of the natural cycles on Earth and in the cosmos, do you feel that there is a sort of unbreakable code of creation itself? And, and if so, um, what does it imply for us as humans, I mean, are we just a, a, a random expression of uh, the universe unwinding, or are we a grace note somehow in the vast symphony of reality? Uh, thanks. Very good question. Um, yeah, I mean, that's it's it's, it's interesting. The, the when you say the universe un unwinding, that's it's very, what what does that mean? The universe unwinding, and and I mean it's. I'd, maybe I'd, st I'd start there. So, uh, so actually, I'm, as you, as you all already could realize, I, I, I'm convinced that the, the, the unfolding reality or the unwinding universe is a process of expressing a desire to be in touch and in contact and to experience oneself as a self. So, so to my eyes, there is a a profound desire to establish connections, which is the the center of this reality, and uh, which happens on so many different levels. We do this um, in our human way, and atoms do this in in the way atoms do it. So, so I, I would even I would say that that um, looking at what happened, like we understand it from from the singularity that we call Big Bang. Um, there was a differentiation of something which was just one, which was just oneness. Obviously, there, there, there was the interest to to differentiate or to rupture or to 
to get out of touch with oneself and then to immensely desire connection. So when we um, put together oxygen and hydrogen and and we see that these two atoms just love to be water, H2O, we see that there's, there's a tendency to explore and to connect and to be curious um, on that level already. It's a, it's, a, it's a tremendous intensification of the desire to connect, which to my eyes already characterizes any kind of matter or energy or what there is. We, as humans, we, we are part of this. And on the other hand, we have this specific quality of being witness to what happens. And from there comes the responsibility to understand the direction of this cosmic unfolding and, and not to destroy this. And I mean, we make a difference in the, in the, in the, um, by the fact that we are so powerful and we can do something which favors into being, like Hans said, or which um, blocks it. And I think that's, that's actually the, the choice we, we need to take as a civilization. Are we favoring into being? Are we favoring um, selfhood, which comes to be through otherness? Or are we favoring um, atomistic um, separation of uh, fake selves, which um, think they can be totally uh, sovereign and in independent from others? So that's that's to my eyes the the, the the fundamental decision we need to take as humans. Mm, wonderful, Andreas. Would you read us another passage from your book? I'd love to. I love the chapter on transformation. I think it's my favorite. It's the center, actually. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, just, just, just because I see the the quote I put um, in front of it, and just which just before I read this, this brings me back to to what we've been talking about before um, when we're talking. We were talking about paradox mm. thoughts and this, the beautiful observation by Simone Weil, the, the French. Um, um, communist and Catholic and mystic, this, this very enigmatic woman, Simone Weil, she, who, who observed, uh, who said every separation is a link or every link is a separation. Yeah, that's, so that's the motto of this, so the whole chapter on transformation is, is set in. Actually, it's not Italy. I mean, the, the much, much of this book is based on my experiences in this, in this tiny village, Varese Ligure. But that's that's actually a Berlin story around the, the place I'm just sitting here and talking to you. So I'm reading these two paragraphs. I remember an evening from 2013 when the summer had just begun. It was a still evening, an evening without wind, when the day's warmth seemed not to want to leave the air, as though the mildness of the coming summer were flowing into the world and filling it to the brim in the darkness. It was also a special evening because in its solemn stillness, I heard the nightingale sing again for the first time. The nightingale, the magical being of transformation, whose voice can enchant the whole world, as though everything were suddenly transformed into some new material, as though things were made of chiming glass in the air of red velvet cloth beneath an immense bell. The nightingale, oh, that wonderful bird, which I could write a whole new book about every spring. The nightingale, that tiny creature weighing just a few grams, practically immaterial, purely voice. 
On that evening, its world-altering power overwhelmed me with a feeling of wonder and gratitude. I also felt melancholy for the already certain transience of our encounter. My heart pounded as I grasped how much I loved this little bird, how much my soul was attached to it, how much my feeling was changed by the touch of its tones. And, and let me just read the next paragraph because then I come get into what I think about transformation just 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 to to carry on this. And my heart beat faster as I understood that all emotional encounters inevitably transform us. All relationships are transformations that leave both me and world changed by one another. Encounters in which one penetrates the other and leaves it altogether different than it was before. Everything changes when we engage with it in emotional contact. No encounter leaves us the same. We cannot be neutral. We are already, always already swept up. So lovely. Thank you. I think many of us have experienced that moment of deep connection and transcendence, um, moments of, of uplift and aliveness. And yet for, for many of us, for most of us, I guess, they are so fleeting and um, they, they evaporate, you know, like the dew. So what do these universal moments teach us? And what did that moment mean to you? What I was feeling is that what is happening with us being selves with feelings and with emotions is that through these emotions, we are also influencing the world. And, and, and I mean, one of the, the firm beliefs is, which is still like a firm mainstream belief, is that there is an exterior world, which is an exterior world, which, uh, which is, can be um, treated according to, to the laws of, of exteriority and physics and technology. And there's an interior world, which is only in our minds and in our brains and which cannot change the, the, the outer world in a way. And, and I wanted to uh, just wanted to show with this, with this, I, I mean, I try to show in this chapter that um, this is actually not the reality of living beings and in living beings. These two worlds are always inter intermixed. They are always one aspect of the other. So already the, the, the nightingale with this, with her this searingly beautiful song, it's an outside, but it, it, it affects myself in, in my inwardness. And obviously, it's also an expression of inwardness, of the nightingale's inwardness, which isn't, which isn't a sentimental feeling, but it's still a desire to express its selfhood through song. And this then has um, a consequence in, in my action. So I, I act differently, and this has, uh, leaves a trace in the world. So the, the, the huge premise of how could you call it, of modernity, that um, our inner lives are kind of private and not really relevant and they are projections and they are just like only um, interesting to ourselves or they're only stories. To my eyes, this is just not true but because we are living in a world which is all the time inside and outside. And and this is something, like because you asked this, um, this is something which in some moments comes to us as um, as this insight, as this flash of um, experience. And I think that I'm sure that everybody listening to us right now is um, can remember moments of this, um, these epiphanies when 
suddenly the world was really re revealed itself as being an inside and being being full of uh, meaning or full of light or full of um, lightness um, but to my eyes this is um, these these moments are um, like the tips of the iceberg and um, there are no illusions and they are no not even special moments but they are um, doors um, which um, can lead us into training ourselves to always experience um, the world as being um, a physical outside which is an expression of some inwardness well it's a kind of what happens to me through my work i'm i'm in a way i'm i'm constantly living in this in this middle zone between these both worlds in a way so because i'm always trying to to be open to to the to this interpenetration of both so so i'm that's my that's my way of um, that's my maybe my my biopoetic way of meditation like like great um, spiritual teachers are always able to to immediately access um, that um, level of um, mindfulness which 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 comes with meditation or which comes before meditation I think it's the true uh, way of the seeker the the spiritual warrior um I mean, I think even the mystic, you know, or the saint makes this distinction between the divine and the literal world. And the, what you're describing is really this superimposition of the two, yes. that as we yeah. become more adept yeah. at recognizing. I mean, when you say mystic, um, in a way, it's, um, it is a mystic experience. Mm. And, and I'm, I'm, in a way, the book is, is a, it's a book, it's a, it's a kind of... Um, it's a protocol of um, of a mystic um, voyage or a mystic quest in a way, um, and um, one part of this protocol is informed by um, avant-garde biological thinking, and other part of this protocol is informed by by the attempt to truly get into a non-verbal um, um, connection with other living beings. But um, it is it, it is mystical in the sense that the mystic sees or experiences inside through outside and uh, experiences the union of both and um, that's very much my conviction that we we, we, we we do this actually as living beings or we are this as living beings and mystics um, of all ages somehow got a glimpse of this so that's the first thing the the newborn human or any other newborn being experiences it's it's the feeling of um, I self here. Um, this world is relevant to me. Kind of trying to find this again, and um, and this uh, just meets with the the, the age old mystic search and mystic experiences. And to my eyes, it's 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 the same thing. It's the so same. It's very simple and it's very big at the same time. Exactly. The title of the series is Preparing for Profound Change, and I feel like everything you're saying is relevant to that topic, and yet I do want to ask you, um, how can we look at what's happening around us with clear eyes um, when we talk about, you know, maybe in terms of environmental collapse, for example, and still find purpose and inspiration? How can we prepare for the profound changes that are coming? Yeah. Well... The, the profound changes that are coming are the profound changes that are happening in, in, in every um, process of identity, which is every life form all the time. So in a, in a, in a very um, difficult and astonishing way, 
the, the well, let's say the, the profound changes or even the sadness of goodbye or the sadness of loss, which is englobing us, is is just a variant of the sadness of loss, which which happens if you if you are fully alive. And I mean, it happens already in in what I try to explain as our metabolism that you you cannot own your body, which is which is fascinating. You you cannot own your body because your body is made of the world, and this world escapes you, and you need to you need to reconstruct yourself from this world again. That's that's a constant question, actually. How to make sense of this deep loss and mourning we are experiencing at the moment, and which to probably and surely will become much more intense in the time to come, and and for a long time. So I don't think it, it will be a short moment. It will be just a, it will be a very long phase. But it can teach us to to understand that to be alive means to to let go on a very ecological level. It means it's not about me. It's not about securing myself. So we have these two sides. We have the side of deep loss, which then also means a deep opening to newness. And um, it's very enigmatic because um, on an individual level, it's it's a profound um, pain. But on a on a maybe on a global or holistic level, it, it's it's also the start of something new. And it's very difficult to, to understand this and to reconcile this in an individual existence. I only know that it's there's a very, very deep and meaningful teaching to be had if we truly open ourselves up to what is happening right now. It's another one of those uh, poetic contradictions, Yes, I guess. Yes. I, I sometimes yes. think that happiness is overrated. You know, I mean, yeah. look, it's hard to be happy um, and aware of the world's suffering at the same time. And yet... Your book teaches me life is this gift. It reminds me, you know, that it's here to be enjoyed in every moment. Um, and that's part of the answer. Thanks for that. I mean, just, just to, I would say happiness is overrated and to be real is underrated. It's, it's interesting that if you grant yourself, if you allow yourself to be real, to be just that what you are, um, then something happens to you with, which might even be accompanied by happiness. But being real, um, which means letting go, comes first. And that's what we what we kind of don't know how to do in our societies. We're always striving for happiness. I mean, the pursuit of happiness, that's the, the archetypal American um, paradigm. It's, it's, it's happiness. But it's, you don't get there um, in, in looking for happiness and sacrificing um, your reality or the way you truly are or your way you really desire to connect or the way the biosphere renews itself through uh, dying. That's, that's, that's all reality, and you can't just um, over, overlay it with happiness. And it doesn't, it, this, it doesn't work this way around. So that's, maybe that's part of the, the teaching we, are, we can have if we open our eyes. It's about how to be real. Would you read that uh, passage from uh, near the end of the book? Yeah, yeah, I'd I, I love to. I'd we've love to, we've so. had two uh, passages so far about birds, and this is another one about birds. And I think it really gets to what we're talking about right now. You know, this this is something. This happens only in, in this, these in situations like this. I, obviously, I've written a book about birds. <laughs> I, I was never, I never think, thought about it like this. Okay, it's this is happening at a small lake in the in the forest not far from my place here in Berlin. 
which has a beautiful forest in, in its in its center, more or less in its center. And um, okay, it's it's about one summer evening at that lake. The lake was completely filled with itself, and on its surface, the lilies drifted, just like me, as I was swimming in it. I remember that once as I was swimming back near to the shore in a spot where I could stand again, I encountered another swimmer, a kind looking Japanese woman who was wearing an oversized pair of goggles for some reason. She was standing in the water with her squarish over large mask and staring agog at four young ducks paddling toward her from a carpet of water lilies. And then her whole face broke out in laughter she stood there alone and could not stop laughing. And with my wet skin and limbs surrounded by cool water, I understood that laughter is an organ of happiness, not of humor. With our laughter, we greet happiness, just as this Japanese woman greeted the ducks and the you in their black button eyes, just as I greeted the water and the you in this water. All that mattered was laughter was laughing in happiness. Ah, uh, just, just wonderful. I want to remind our listeners that the book is Matter and Desire, an Erotic Ecology by our guest, Andreas Weber. Thank you, Andreas. I can't tell you um, just how much I've enjoyed this past hour with you, and um, the work, your work is, is just inspiring. Um, thank you for joining us on Cosmos Live. Thanks so much, Rhonda, for hosting me, for having me here. Thanks so much.